Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares four ways we will be known as followers of Jesus. How are you known? Let's listen now as Pastor Rob explores that question in his sermon titled, How We Are Known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence and turn our attention to your word today, we pray asking that you would speak. We confess in your presence that there are so many voices vying for our attention today, so much noise and distraction even, seeking to prevent us from hearing you. And so, God, we pray that you would speak clearly, that your voice would resound through the clutter and the noise in our lives. God, help us to hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue thinking about the master class in discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, today we're asking the question, how are we known? How are we known? You see, the Enigma machines from World War II remind us that if we want to be hidden, it can be pretty difficult to know us, at least fully. The Enigma machine was invented by a German engineer shortly after the end of World War I. It looked like a typewriter, and through a series of interchangeable knobs and dials and connections, it was able to turn letters into messages that were encrypted and nearly indecipherable. By 1932, the Poles had cracked the Enigma code, but by the beginning of World War II, the British and their allies still had no idea how to read encrypted German transmissions. The Germans understood that somehow the Enigma machine's encryption had had been uh, begun to be broken, and so they responded by increasing the levels of encryption and the level of difficulty in reading their messages, particularly the messages being exchanged by their navy and by the highest levels of their command. The British were completely in the dark, though, and so they commissioned 9,000 British intelligence intelligence officers and sent them to Bletchley Park, an estate in the countryside of England. And their job was to intercept and interpret German signals intelligence, particularly those encrypted by the Enigma machines. But at the beginning of World War II, the British and the Allies were completely in the dark. Because when we do not want to be known, we can make it difficult for others to know us fully. You and I, by and large, want to be known, actually, but not always accurately. Social media reminds us of the fact that the image that we portray to others around us is frequently an image that's curated, kind of like the way we curate the photos and the posts that we put on social media. We're seeking to present the best picture possible of ourselves to the world around us, which is why we even do things like use filters on our photographs, because those filters make us look better than we look in real life, because we don't want to be known accurately. 
We want to be known in an idealized version of ourselves. But the New Testament teaches us that we are going to be known. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us repeatedly that we are going to be judged. We're going to be judged, and when we are, we are going to be known. We're going to be known accurately. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us at the beginning that we'll be judged with the same kind of judging standards that we use for others. Later in chapter 7, Jesus tells us that there are two kinds of people, some whom he will know on the day of judgment and claim as his own, and others he will not know and not claim as his own. He tells us that our lives are going to end up in two different ways. Those of us who build our lives on his teaching will stand in days of difficulty and judgment, and those of us who do not build our lives on his teaching will not stand in days of difficulty and judgment. Jesus lets us know in one way after another in Matthew chapter 7 that we will be judged. And so how are we known? That's the question that Jesus is dealing with late in Matthew chapter 7 in verses 12 through 20. We are going to be judged. We are going to be known. We are going to be known fully and accurately because God is going to know us in a way that feels like peeling back an onion where one layer after another of deceit and pretense is going to be peeled away until the core of who we are is laid bare. And so if we are to be judged, if we are to be known fully by God and revealed for who we truly are, we kind of want to know the answer to the question, how are we known? And Jesus deals with that question in Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 20. He begins by telling us that we are known by our character. We're known by our character. Jesus addresses this fact in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus begins with that word so, which means that he is summarizing and wrapping up and referring to what just went before. So is almost like therefore or since. Jesus has said something important and now he's going to draw an implication from it. Well, what did Jesus say immediately before verse 12? It's a good thing we studied that last week, isn't it? Just last week, we dealt with those verses because in them, Jesus told us to ask and seek and knock for everything that we need to live the disciples' lifestyle. In that passage, Jesus told us something important about the character of God. In a couple of different pictures, Jesus assured us that God is good, that God is powerful, and that God knows our needs. This is God's character. God's character is good and powerful. He knows our needs. And God's character is revealed by his actions. Being good and powerful and knowing what we need, by his actions, God seeks to give us everything that we need to live the disciples' lifestyle. God's character is revealed in his actions. So, Jesus says, and he's pivoting now to verse 12, and what he's going to let us know in verse 12 is that just as God's character is known by his actions, our character is known by our actions. Now, what actions most profoundly reveal our character? Jesus lets us know in verse 12. 
Verse 12 is what we call very simply and commonly the golden rule. Do to others that which you would have them do to you. Do to others at least, no less, perhaps more than you would have others do to you. Jesus says this is a summary of the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus has summarized the law and the prophets in other ways elsewhere. Summarizing the law and prophets is Jesus' way of summarizing the Old Testament, meaning he's saying to us, this is God's word to us, this is God's revealed will to us. If we want to understand God's revealed will, his word, then Jesus says, here's how you can boil it down. In some places, Jesus says you can summarize the law and the prophets in, in this way. Love God and love others or your neighbors as you love yourself. Jesus and plenty of others say that's a really good summary of God's revealed will in the law and the prophets. But here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is boiling it down once again. He's building on the notion that if we love God, then we have to love our neighbors. And what does loving our neighbors look like? Jesus says loving your neighbor looks like doing to them at least, probably more, than what you want them to do to you, certainly doing no less than you want them to do to you. And Jesus is saying our choice about loving our neighbors in this way, about doing to others as they would do to us, reveals our character. How are we known? We're known by our character. If we do to others as we would have them do to us, then it says that we have the, the character of God inside of us. We have the family resemblance of sons and daughters of God growing inside of us, and that character is coming out in our actions. And if we do not love those around us, if we do not do to others as we would have them do to us, then instead there is a lack of family resemblance. Where, where God's resemblance should be coming out, there is something else dark growing inside of us and coming out in our character. We are known and defined by our character. Jesus goes on to say that we are also known by our choice regarding him. We are known by our choice regarding Jesus. And Jesus gives us a couple of images to help us understand that our choice regarding him is critically important. He gives them to us in verses 13 and 14 where he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, now let's think about this image that Jesus has given to us for just a minute. He says that there are two gates, and each of these gates leads to a road, a way, a path. Now, Jesus tells us that the two gates and the attached roads are not like or similar to one another. He begins with a broad, a wide gate that leads to a way that is also broad, and it is accommodating and easy. And he says, because the gate is wide and the way is easy and accommodating behind it, many people take this gate and this way. But he says that this broad gate and this easy way that many people take 
leads, surprisingly, to destruction. And by destruction, Jesus means that those who take that wide gate and that broad, easy way are destined to a judgment that says that they are consigned eternally to hell, to judgment, and to separation from God and death eternal. Now, by contrast, Jesus says there is a narrow gate. And this narrow gate is attached to a way that he says is hard or difficult meaning that it comes with, at times, suffering and even tribulation. But he says that this way is the way that leads to life. Few people will take it. It's difficult to find, and it's difficult as a pathway to walk. But those who walk it come to life, and by that he means eternal life and the life of a disciple. There are two choices, he says. The broad gate leading to the easy way and the narrow gate leading to the difficult way. Two choices. We don't really like having two choices, do we? Baskin-Robbins reminds us that we like to have a lot of choices. Baskin-Robbins was founded shortly after World War II by two brothers-in-law, and from the very beginning, Baskin-Robbins made a habit of offering at least 31 flavors, one for every day of the month. They knew that we would like choices. It would keep us coming back. Now, over time, of course, Baskin-Robbins has had a lot more than 31 flavors, but you get the idea. There's a flavor for every day of the month. Choice is so important to Baskin-Robbins that they bake the number 31 into their classic and their updated logos. It's right there in the center of the B and the R. Baskin-Robbins' success and dominance in the ice cream industry reminds us that we like choices. We like lots and lots of choices. But the Bible reminds us that there are times that we face two choices and that the contrast between the two of them is clear and it is stark. The Bible makes it clear to us that we have a choice sometimes between God and not God, between wisdom and folly, between good and evil, between serving God and serving material and ourselves. There are two choices. In the Old Testament, the leader Moses was explaining to Israel their choices. Moses had led them to the very edge of the promised land. And before they went into the promised land, Moses wanted to reiterate the commands that God had given to them and encourage them to be faithful to the covenant that they had with God. And he told them very starkly about the choice that they faced. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, he said to them, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and and evil, a very stark choice between the two. The Bible presents us frequently with two choices, and we are required to choose. Jesus makes it very clear that as we think about these gates and the ways attached to them, we are making a choice about him. When Jesus speaks about there being a gate, a narrow gate, Jesus is that narrow gate. He makes that clear in John chapter 10, verse 9, where he says, I am the door, or I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. When we come to the narrow gate, that narrow gate represents Jesus, and we have a choice to make about belonging to Jesus or not. He goes on to explain that not only is he the gate or the door, but he is also the way or the road behind. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is saying that we make a very stark choice about the road that we will walk in life. Will we rock, walk the road he walked? Will we live the lifestyle he lives? Will he, we live the lifestyle that he calls his disciples to live? The choice that we're making is a choice regarding Jesus. How will we be known? We'll be known for our choice regarding Jesus. If we choose the narrow gate and the difficult way, if we choose Jesus, then that way leads to life. This is the most important choice any of us ever makes in life because if we choose the wide gate and the broad, easy, accommodating way that goes along with that, we're choosing eternal death and separation from God in hell. We are known and defined by our choice regarding Jesus. Jesus goes on to add that we are also known by the voices we listen to. We're known by the voices we listen to. And he makes this clear that we're known by the voices, the authorities, the advisors in our lives in verses 15 and 16 where he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, you see, the Bible repeatedly warns us about false prophets, about the existence and the seriousness of false prophets. In fact, back in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses was recapitulating many of the things that he had said to the people of Israel, reiterating them and reinforcing them for them, he reminded them that God had told him about the coming of false prophets and how dangerous they were. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, Moses quoted the Lord who said, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or one who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And so he's defining for us false prophets here. False prophets are the ones who say they're speaking on behalf of the Lord, but really what they're saying is out of their own heads or from some other source. And Moses is saying false prophets exist and false prophets are very dangerous. Jesus reiterates the, the, the significance and, and the dangerous nature of false prophets in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, where he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now right here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is reminding us that these false prophets are frequently disguised. He gives us a picture that if it weren't so deadly serious would be hilarious because he says false prophets wrap them up in that wrap themselves up in in the skin of a sheep to look innocent and harmless, which that's just a funny picture if you can see it in your head. But he says inwardly, underneath that thin exterior, they are in fact ravenous wolves, meaning that they consciously seek to deceive and to destroy and consume God's people. False prophets, false teachers are frequently disguised. But Jesus is going on to let us know as well that false prophets are extremely dangerous. 
I don't know if you noticed, but when Jesus was talking about the narrow gate and the difficult way behind it, he said, few will find it. When he says that they will find it, he means that few will notice it, be able to discern it, be able to see the clues that are leading in that direction. False prophets and false teachers make it even more difficult to find the narrow gate and the difficult way that leads to life and to Jesus. And beyond that, false prophets and false teachers make it more difficult to stay on that difficult road that leads to life, make it more difficult to lead the disciples' lifestyle. They cause us to miss the narrow gate in the first place. They cause us to leave leave the difficult way that leads to life. Jesus wants us to understand that false teachers and false prophets are extremely dangerous. Now, the simple fact of the matter is that we are surrounded by false teachers and false prophets, just as Jesus told us. In our culture, we are constantly bombarded by false teachers and prophets who teach a radical brand of secularism. And by that, they mean that God is not welcome in the public realm and in public debate and discourse. Beyond that, we're surrounded by voices, by teachers who profess a radical kind of humanism. And by that, I mean a humanism that says that that we are almost like little gods ourselves. We are sufficient entirely to ourselves. We get to make our own rules in life, and we get to set our own destiny. We are in control of it all. That's what we're told. Beyond that, we're surrounded by voices that teach a radical kind of materialism. Now, that doesn't mean a radical kind of desire to have things, although that comes out of it. It's a radical view that says that the material world is self-creating, self-generating, and self-regenerating. And what that means is that the most important and real things in life are the things that we can see, touch, have, and hold. Those things matter and nothing else does. And on top of all this secularism, humanism, and materialism, these voices teach a radical kind of individualism. And by that, I mean they take the the statement that launched the modern age in a way, I think, therefore, I am, and turn it into a statement of belief. I think, therefore, I am what I think I am. I think, therefore, I should have what I want to have. These false teachers and false prophets create desperate trouble for us. How are we known, though? How are we known? We're known by the voices we listen to. If we consistently listen to false voices, then eventually our minds are going to become consumed by those false voices. And if we consistently listen to false voices, eventually those false voices are going to lead us to false action. We are known and defined by the voices we listen to. Jesus ends by saying we are also known by our actions. Jesus, you see, broadens the test for understanding what a false prophet is in verses 17 through 20, where he says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them 
by their fruits. Now, having warned us about false prophets, Jesus is giving us a test. If false prophets are deceitful and dangerous, then we should be asking the question, okay, then how will I know false prophets? And Jesus is giving us a test here. He's saying you will know a false prophet by the fruits of their life. A false prophet or teacher is going to say and do things that are in contradiction to God's word. They're going to do and say things that are in contradiction to, for instance, the law and the prophets and the gospel. They're going to say and do things that are in contradiction to the principles of loving God and loving neighbors. By that, he means they're going to say things like we should love God, but to love God means to obey God. That's what righteousness looks like. And eventually, a false prophet is going to do things that are unrighteous, that disobey God, and they will do so privately or publicly. In addition, false prophets may talk about loving one another and loving our neighbors. But to love one another, to love our neighbors, looks like sacrificing for the other and putting the needs of the other ahead of our own, of doing to others what we would have them do to us. That's justice. And eventually, the false prophet is going to do things that are unjust, will treat others in unjust ways, either privately or publicly. How do you know a false prophet? You know them eventually because they do things that are unrighteous and unjust, things that are unloving toward God and unloving toward others. You know them by the fruit of their actions. Jesus is actually, though, broadening this test and applying it to us. At first, this teaching applies purely to knowing a false prophet. But in a sense, in verses 17 through 20, Jesus is backing the lens out for just a moment and saying that this thing is true not only of false prophets, but of us. It turns out we, too, are known by the fruit of our lives. We, too, are known by our actions. Jesus gives us a series of images, and let me just make them very simple for you. What Jesus says is, apples come from apple trees. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Unhealthy fruit comes from an unhealthy tree. And Jesus is saying to us, very simply again, that our actions demonstrate the character that's inside. What we do comes from who we are. What we do, our actions, in an important sense, define us. And so how are we known? We are known by our actions. If our actions are ungodly and unloving and unrighteous and unjust, then it says that at our core is a void where God should be and something else is driving us. But if our actions are just and righteous, if our actions demonstrate that we love God and love those around us, then it says that at our core, our lives are being driven by the character of God growing inside of us. We are known and defined by our actions. Eventually, at Bletchley Park, the Enigma Code was broken. 
The team there at Bletchley Park, led by mathematician Alan Turing, was, Turing was eventually able to break the Enigma code. And when they did, they were able ultimately to decipher all of Nazi communications during World War II. They were able to read messages from the Eastern Front and the Western Front. They were able to discern what was going on on land and even ultimately at sea. They even were able to break communications at the highest level of the German government in World War II. As a result, they knew everything about German movements, and so they were able to uh, funnel supplies across the Atlantic Ocean. Troops, ammunition, fuel, all of the armaments that they needed for World War II, and consequently, as a result, were able to launch the D-Day invasion of Europe on time and according to plan. And launching the D-Day invasion of Europe, in all likelihood, took years off of World War II and saved millions of lives, it probably determined the course and outcome of World War II. Why? Because as it turns out, everything that is hidden and unknown will ultimately be known. Everything that we hide Everything that we try to deceive with, everything that we try to keep to ourselves is someday going to come out. We will be judged. We will be known. How will you be known? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.